Uh, all right, uh, <coughs> John chapter 12, uh, picking up our uh, narrative in verse 24, excuse me, verse 44, verse 44, John 12, verse 44. This is God's word. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people often, people often ask this question, um, if there's a good God, uh, why is there so much uh, bad in the world? That's a common question, isn't it? Uh, maybe you've wondered that. The real question is, uh, why isn't there only bad in the world? Um, if there is a good God, and uh, he made a good creation, but that creation rebelled against him, human beings, the caretakers of all of the creation, the, they were given dominion over that creation, if, if they rebelled against him, and uh, he promised to punish them if they did that, um, why wouldn't there only be bad? Why wouldn't you just punish uh, and get rid of it all? So anything that's beyond our being punished and jettisoned from his presence is grace, isn't it? How about this? Um, you may not believe in a God who made the universe, but if you've got any notion of right and wrong, you know, you think that something's right, something's wrong, something's good, something's bad, you've proven that the standard comes from somewhere. Uh, there is no culture that has ever lived in all of human history anywhere that thinks it's okay to walk up and just bash someone in the face with a hammer. Every person who ever lived in every culture, there's no culture where it's like, oh, well, you know, it is kind of a nuisance when somebody, you know when people bash you in the face with a hammer? <laughs> you know when that happens? Oh, well, you know, it is kind of an annoyance, uh, and I wish that wouldn't happen, but, you know, that's just part of our, it's one of the mores, one of the quirks of our cultures, ha <laughs> ha. No culture has ever said that. Every culture who's ever lived, every person who ever lives thinks it's bad. They think it's wrong. They think it's evil to just walk up and bash somebody in the face with a hammer. Well, that, that, that standard comes from somewhere. You know, people also ask, if there's a good God, why doesn't he do something? I mean, there's all this calamity in the world, and if there's a good God, why doesn't he do something? I don't understand why he just doesn't do something. Well, may I direct you to the text? Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Verse 45, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. You see that something has happened. There has been a response by this good God toward his creation. There is an answer, 
And it is from here that we get our text and uh, context um, for the uh, passage today. Uh, The gospel is explicitly stated, believed, and rejected. You get that? The gospel is explicitly stated, it's explicitly believed, and it's explicitly or it's explicitly rejected. You explicitly do those things. Now, uh, this passage is an interesting one. You come to a little bit of a conundrum uh, when you come to it. If you're handling it, you're trying to divide the word and you're trying to make it, um, you know, sermon points, you know, sermon points aren't zingy. They're not zingy. They're not little things that preachers do to make it, in, you know, it, interesting. They're, they're, I, I view them, I, I explain it this way, they're like, they're like hand grips on a rock wall. So we're trying to get to the top. And a, and a sermon point is you dividing the passage in a way where somebody can get a grip, and then they move up, and you can get another grip uh, if you had two working arms. But um, uh, so, so this 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 is a, a an odd passage. Where, where do you put it? Do you put it in the previous one? Do you tuck it away? Also, people don't know what to do with it because it's it's kind of uh, of unique. Now, previously, the previous hunk of verses. You see that the gospel writer, John, and of course, ultimately the gospel writer, the real ultimate gospel writer is the Holy Ghost, who superintended real human beings writing the scriptures. John writes this, and the, the prophecy of Isaiah is precisely applied to Jesus. Uh, in verse 41, if you look at it, it says, um, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, who's his? Jesus. That's what the gospel writer John and the Holy Spirit is saying here. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. And you don't believe me? Go to verse 37. Though Jesus had done so many signs, miracles, before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and then Isaiah is quoted. It is applied precisely to Jesus. Is that not amazing? So that's just happened. And uh, all of that was in response to something. It's in response to verse um, 36b um, at, the, at the paragraph break there. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Right? So Jesus has been with the crowd. He's had this earthly ministry cooking. The crowds are following. Disciples are following. And um, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them so that the prophecy of Isaiah might be fulfilled. It is applied to Jesus. And then we come to this passage here. All right? Now, what makes it tricky is verse 13 is a clear division in the book. In fact, um, this is commonly known, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel, of, first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John is, is uh, kind of in, coined uh, the book of signs, the book of miracles, and then the second half uh, is uh, coined the, the book of the passion, all right? So from chapter 13 on, Jesus is in an upper room. It's, it's, it's the upper room discourse. He's with his disciples, and it's the night he gets arrested. And I mean, the whole thing just kind of goes, and John opens it up to this dialogue uh, of Jesus with his disciples, all right? So, uh, and a lot of commentators will break their book, their volume one and volume two right here, chapters one through 12, 13 to the end, all right? But then you've got this weird little hunk of verses, verses 44 and following, where we are today, and people don't know what to do with it. And here's why they don't know what to do with it. The difficulty is, verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
prophecy of, of Isaiah is applied to Jesus. And then in verse 44, it says, and Jesus cried out and said. Now who, the question is, who is Jesus talking to? He's um, pulled himself away from the uh, crowds and hid himself from them. And from this point on, he's dedicating himself to the disciples. Who is Jesus talking to? Well, the short answer is the disciples. That's the short answer. Um, Was it in the upper room? I don't know. I don't know. It looks like a little bit of time passes, and verse 13 happens. Um, But the, the reason I say that is because some commentators, some really awesome commentators, think that um, John is summarizing uh, Jesus' teaching in these, this hunk of verses. And that would, not be, that would not be inappropriate because, as I've told you many times, um, gospel writers are not writing a linear history. Um, they're, they're, it's not a little catalog. It's not something for Wikipedia. It's um, a historical, excuse me, it's an, a, a theological um, history. It's a theological history. It's, it's, uh, is, it, is, it, is it biased? Yes. Is it cherry-picking? Yes. Is it taking selective things about Jesus' life and ministry? Yes. It's trying to tell us who this Savior is on purpose. And so some commentators go, well, that's obviously John taking Jesus' teaching, the bulk of it, and, and mashing it down into a, a big hunk, uh, and that'll be a great way to kind of pull us in to chapter 13, and uh, that's what Jesus is doing here and so on. The problem is this. That, I, I, I could accept that. The problem is I can't, I don't know what to do with the beginning of verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said. There, there are five places in the gospel where Jesus cries out. And uh, one's in Matthew, one's in Mark. They both have to do with his, um, his uh, uh, suffering on the cross. And then if you remember back in... Um, uh, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of verse uh, at the end of uh, chapter seven. All right, we were in the, we were in, a, in the Feast of Tabernacles for a good bit, and at the very end of it, on the last day of the feast, uh, Jesus cries out and he says, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." I mean, it's this this uh, th- this beseeching. To hear him, and it's got a familiar ring to it. It sounds a lot like this, doesn't it? Jesus cries out. He says, whoever believes in me, um, th- that, that he cries out. By the way, he also cries out when he calls Lazarus out from the tomb. But my point is, that is such a, you, you only find Jesus crying out in a narrative, don't you? I mean, it's, a narrative is, is a, a story. It's, it's, a, it's a, a telling of what actually happened, a narrative. Um, and so Jesus, speaking passionately, says this thing. And Jesus, speaking passionately, calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And passionately, in his passion on the cross, he cries out in sorrow. Uh, at the end of the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles, he cries out, I'm the living water. And here it says he cries out. That's not metaphorical. That's, that, that's, that, that belongs in a narrative. All right? So um, um, Jesus is speaking passionately, I believe, to his disciples about himself. When? I don't know if it's in the upper room. Probably not. But, but Jesus cries out, and um, the point is, um, I mean, this, this hunk of verses is, is a potent summary indeed, but I think it's Jesus saying to his disciples, this is reality. This is the gospel, and in a way, it still rings today, doesn't it? 
I mean, he's talking to the guys that are following him, except for Judas, of course, but he's talking to the people who are following him. We're following him, and this is a, uh, an entreaty, as if that's the right word. It's, it's, it's Jesus um, speaking passionately about what he came to do. All right, um, it seems like that would be very important to us. All right, so let's go to our first point, which is this. Uh, the light of the world was sent as a mediator. Uh, verse 44, uh, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, I already read you the, the three sent me's in this passage. I'm not going to read them again to you, but it means that Jesus was on a mission. If he was sent, it means that he was on a mission. Uh, an ambassador is sent somewhere by somebody. An ambassador, an emissary is sent somewhere by somebody to represent them. And when you represent them, you're representing thoughts, ideas, motives, intentions. Okay, that's what Jesus is doing. The intentions of the sending party, Jesus has been sent, he's representing somebody. And in that way, that mediator um, also does something else. Um, He um, reveals the one who gave him the authority. Right? So when Jesus says he's sent, he's not just saying, um, uh, this is me, I've just made all this stuff up, and I, I want, he was sent uh, by the Father. Now, um, don't turn, but this is, uh, well, actually, you know what, do, please do turn. Uh, please go to um, Colossians chapter 1. So Galatians, Philippians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. This is, uh, this will thrill your soul. This is, what, hey, this is why I wanted you to turn to it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That means he's God. And he is before all things from eternity, and in him all things hold together. So he shares the attributes and essence and substance with the Father. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, Hebrews 1.3 says this, this is the NIV. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The ESV says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. And so Jesus has been sent by the Father. And um, in our passage here, it says um, in verse 44 and 45, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. The exact imprint. You see me, you see the Father, says Jesus. And what's so cool about that is that, that, when, that, that, that word sees me, you see me, you see the Father. Um, there's a Greek word, thereo. 
and I'm not trying to impress you with the Greek that I don't know, but I, I can look it up in a book. But uh, the reason I'm telling that to you is thereo. It's not hard to see where we might get some English words from that. What do you think we might get from thereo? Theory. Theorize. All right, if you have a theory, what do you do with a theory? You explore it deeply, don't you? You think about it, you ponder it, you puzzle over it, you look at it, for, at it from every angle. To, to have a theory is to think deeply about something, to try to understand it. And the idea here is to, to think on Jesus is to know the Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. Not a casual little statement. You think on Jesus. You explore Jesus, and get, guess what you get? The God of the universe. The God who flung everything into existence through Jesus. You see Jesus, you see the Father. And so for the Jew then, and for the Jew now, and for all peoples forever, the Christian gospel says that no one comes to Yahweh but by Jesus Christ. Now, I know that we're friendly with, with Jewish people, and... Um, you know, it's interesting, too, now that I'm 0.5% Jew verified, I can tell you all the persecution that I've suffered here, but, uh, you know, I've, I've known Jewish converts, um, and, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll call themselves completed Jews. Did you ever, do you know that? Completed Jews, I love that statement, but um, they'll, they'll open up and say, yeah, to this day, I still, as a Jewish person, I still feel guilty um, when I'm around Christians, because I feel like we think we killed, we, we, they think we, I killed Jesus, we killed Jesus. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding? Christians are kind of in awe of Jewish people, aren't we? I mean, I mean that's why Christians are pro-Israel. We don't, we don't know what the heck's happening over there. Don't quite understand Revelation, but we kind of think Israel's really important. And uh, we sure do love the Old Testament and celebrate the prophets and the Torah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of warmth and overlap with Jewish people. I mean, you feel a kindred spirit. I mean, I have a Jewish dermatologist, and uh, I told you, I bring an, an Old Testament commentary with me a lot of times when I go there, because I want them to go, why are you reading First Kings? And I want to go, because I love your Bible, you know? But all to say, friends, Jesus, can you imagine how radical that is for Jesus to break on the scene and say that you Yahweh worshipers only worship Yahweh through Jesus? You see me, you've seen the Father. The only way to approach Yahweh, truly, is to come through Jesus, the Christ, who was sent by Yahweh. And by the way, that goes for Abraham and everybody, every Old Testament believer. The only ones who come into Yahweh, to, to come to Yahweh, are the ones who have believed the promise of God to send this Messiah, who is Jesus. Uh, verse 46, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, it says in chapter 14, verse 9. Application for your life. Uh, rejection of Christ is a rejection of God. Rejection of Christ, the Christ, is a rejection of Yahweh, the sender. Uh, here's a great quote from Gordon Ketty. This is just uh, it, it's of this, this term, him who sent me. Here's what Gordon, uh, Gordon Ketty, he's, a, he's an Australian uh, 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 Bible commentator and preacher, kind of old now, but awesome. Uh, he says, um, this one expression, him who sent me, this one expression encompasses a whole theology of mediation. <laughs> him who sent me. 
It's not just some little old thing that we read and float by. It is a wellspring of information about this God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. All right, next point. Uh, the light of the world was sent to save, not judge. Uh, verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Um, this is John 3.17, so this is back a number of chapters ago. Um, John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through Him. That's right on the heels of John 3.16, by the way. John 3.17 comes right after John 3.16. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. But folks, how do those things reconcile with this? 2 Timothy 4.1. Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the quick and the dead, some of your uh, uh, translations have, Ron. Uh, I love that quick and the dead. You know, you got dead, not so quick, and then quick, you know. Um, Christ Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. How about John nine thirty nine in our very book? So you got John three seventeen that says, hey, I didn't come to the judge of the world. I came, didn't condemn it. I came to save it. Here it says, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. But, you know, in chapter 9, he says, for judgment I came into this world. How do we reconcile that with verse 47? Well, first of all, you can read the rest of the sentence back in John 9, 39. Um, Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the quick and the dead, for judgment I came into the world, uh, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So he's come with a saving intent. But when that saving intent is rejected... There, there's a big problem. I, I also sent, I said this when we studied chapter 3, that Jesus was sent by the Father savingly, all right? He came into this world, born of a Virgin Mary, grew up, lived a perfect life, is headlong for the cross, not to judge, but to save. But He's going to come again. And when He comes in again at the end of time, there will be a judgment, a returning of Jesus who will judge the quick and the dead. My point is simply this. Jesus came to die on a cross to save sinners. His role was not judge, but Savior. That's why he's living his earthly life saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. The Father sent me. I'm the ambassador. I'm the one. I'm the promised Messiah. Isaiah pointed to me. Believe in me. I've come to save you, not judge you, save you. He's saying that. That's his earthly ministry. But that said... Um, even, even in the, the, the face of the gospel, there is a grave warning. Now, you don't have to turn because I'm already there, but uh, J- John 3.16, you know it? Uh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You love that verse, don't you? Then I read to you verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And here it is, the next verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
application for your life. Um, you only need a Savior when you're in need of being saved. All right? I, th- I, think, I think Jesus is often presented as a helper. It's great to have a little helper in your life, and that's why, you know, Jesus take the wheel is such a bad theology. Um, I want to drive it. When I have a little bit of trouble, you take it over, kind of like the driving instructor, and then when uh, I feel like the car's under control again, I want to take it back again, and we go back and forth, back and forth. That's not how it operates. That's not how it is. You need a Savior when you're in need of being saved. Jesus as Savior isn't a little fairy idea. Uh, The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23 says. The wages of sin is death. Jesus came to pay the wages on the cross. But here's the good news, Romans 3.24. Wages of sin is death, and you are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus came to save. Um, But but there's a flip side, which takes us to our last point, uh, which is this. The light of the world was sent to speak what will be judged, right? So he comes into this world born of a virgin, lives an earthly life. He's going to lay his life down on the cross, not to judge, but to save. But he speaks a word as an ambassador of the Father, and the word will judge. Look at verse 48. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. That's, that's, the, that's the way Jesus will come back and judge. The word that I have spoken will be the judge. What does that mean? It means that to hear the truth is to be accountable to the truth. And you know, Romans 1 says that there's not a person who's ever lived that has not seen creation. I should say this. You know, we were talking about this and in, in, uh, infants who die. Um, you know, you got the David passage and all that, but I think that Romans 1 is potent also. Um, I look at the creation and I say, oh, wow. There, it looks like a design about, uh, behind this. Um, you look at DNA and you go, eh, that doesn't look very random. It looks like architecture. I mean, even when you zoom in on stuff, you're like, that looks like a ladder. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't look like just a bunch of random goop. I mean, it's, there's, it looks like intelligence in there. Um, and so Romans 1 talks about uh, being able to ascertain God's divine qualities by what he's made. Um, can babies do that? Can fetuses do that? Can children who are born mentally handicapped do that? I, don't, I just think it's a very powerful argument for God's kindness um, in, in, uh, in the accountability of a, of a human soul. But all to say, those of us who can see creation um, understand that there are, there are divine qualities about God. Um, you hear the truth, you see the truth, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You either see it and accept it, or you reject it. Uh, to hear the truth is to be accountable to the truth. Um, I, I don't know, I'm sure there are no teeny children in here. That uh, any, 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 any reservations about me talking about Santa Claus in the room? No, everybody's fine, secure? Oh, Peter, I'm sorry, buddy. About to, about to ruin it for you. But I was told about Santa Claus when I was five by my mother, and she sat me down, and she said, all right, think about it. <laughs> Fat guy, 
on a sled in the sky being pulled by deer. And, you know, even at five, I'm like, you know, that is odd. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, told me the news, and I was quite proud of it. Uh, in fact, I went and told every kid in the neighborhood that I could find. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, that night, I laid in bed and I cried. And I tried to unbelieve it. Isn't that wild? Tried to unbelieve it. I'm not getting choked about Santa Claus. It's grace. Believe me, it's grace. Um, I tried to unbelieve it. I wanted to, I wanted to re-believe the, the myth about Santa Claus. But I'd heard the truth, and I couldn't unhear the truth. My point is this. You know, uh, in chapter uh, 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, that's the truth. You've heard the truth. You can't unhear it. And now, what has been explicitly proclaimed, you either explicitly believe or you explicitly reject. One way to the Father, one way of salvation, one way of redemption, one way of handling your guilt, one way for you to be okay for all eternity, one path to God, not a bunch, not sincerity, not anything else, one way who is Christ and the Word will judge you on the last day. The Word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus has spoken the truth to you. You've heard it. You accept it. Or you reject it. Um, Would you flip to chapter 5 real quick? We're almost done. Chapter 5, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. All right. Last thing I want to bust out at you here. We're almost done. Let me kind of get a page flip here. Um, This is um, from Acts uh, chapter 17. Just listen. Um, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who's going to judge? Jesus is going to come back and see who believed and who didn't. Now, religion that tickles the mind is nebulous. It's got fog on it. It's confusing, and it's, it's inwardly anchored, and it's, there's a lot of breathe, breathe. You know, a lot, of, a lot of hocus pocus in a lot of religious systems. Jesus is very clear. It's, it's explicitly stated. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is explicitly stated. Now you must either explicitly reject it 
or explicitly believe it. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> that uh, we have an interest in you, and frankly, Lord, um, th- that, I, that I'm not storming out of this room in disgust is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in my heart because um, I want to control and I want to uh, uh, manage the outcome and I want to have my say about what you are like and what uh, uh, this life is supposed to be. But, uh, oh God, I, I love the Savior and um, I believe His Word. Um, we thank you for eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, and I pray for every soul in this room. I pray that uh, you would give grace precisely and explicitly that um, hungry souls might explicitly believe this Christ who is Lord and Savior and Judge and Son of God. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it.